Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. I'm Christy Tate. I'm the author of BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found. Author Christy Tate is not a stranger to memoirs. In her first book, Group, she wrote about how her psychotherapy group helped her find human connection. And now Tate has written a second memoir, BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found. In it, she explores friendships through the years and how her behavior affected those friendships. I recently spoke with Christy Tate about friendship, recovery, forgiveness, and so much more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so the dedication of your book reads to Meredith, a promise is a promise. And the prologue begins with the scene of you speaking at Meredith's funeral. Who is Meredith? Could you introduce her to our listeners? Sure. Meredith is a friend who changed the course of my life. I was lucky enough. I met her in a 12-step recovery program. And for about eight years, I ignored her. I was pretty narrowly focused. I was trying to find a husband. I wasn't in the market for friends. And she was also 20 years older than I was. And I was very immature in my approach to friendship. I thought, well, we all have to be the same age and doing the same thing. So I couldn't expand that definition to include her. And then through a series of events, we ended up talking more. And when I finally settled down romantically, she's the first person and actually the only person who tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, now that you've settled down romantically and we can stop crying over all the boys, (laughs) all the boys who had done you wrong, maybe you want to look at your friendships now. And it was one of those statements that just rang through me like a gong. And I knew she was saying something I really needed to hear because the truth was I had ignored friendship since I was about 17 years old because I was socialized or for whatever reason to be on a quest for a mate. And I had a lot of work to do around friendship. And I'm so glad I got to do it side by side with her. And she's the friend who helped me, who invited me in and then stood shoulder to shoulder with me as we worked on being better friends and learning how to be good friends to each other and to others. You know, the book is about friendships, plural, many of them yours, but some Meredith's. And throughout the book, you know, you recalled instances in which you felt you were a bad friend, usually, you know, letting the friendships end. And I want to talk to you about that in a moment. But first, I want to jump to the acknowledgments because the names listed throughout the acknowledgments weren't names I expected to see. And they were different than the names that were in the book. Did you change the names in the book? Yes, I changed the name. Everybody's name is different in the book except for mine, including my husband and my children and certainly all the friends. They definitely deserve thanks. But I wanted them to have their privacy and I didn't want to compound our friendship (laughs) struggles by invading privacy, adding that to my list of foibles. So how did you approach writing about your friends? Did you tell them that you were going to write about them? And, and, you know, for that matter, what about Meredith's friends who you wrote about? Oh, boy, (laughs) this is a very good question. This is the right question. So when I start writing a project, I have to be sealed in the little box of my home office, or I'm too stymied by worrying about taking care of other people. What am I allowed to say? 
I change all the names from the beginning and any identifying features, but I don't let other people really know what I'm up to because I'm too susceptible to folding internally and creatively. What I did do is there were some relationships that were very problematic and also emblematic of my struggles in friendship. And I knew I would be writing about them. And that was always on the horizon. I couldn't quite turn that off. And I was very, very careful in the writing to just talk about my part and not, I didn't want to talk about the baggage that other people brought in because I cannot tell that story. I can only tell what it feels like from my eyes and my heart. So that was clear. But then once the book was written, I had work to do in these friendships. And I I called it my goodwill apology tour. (laughs) And I made appointments with friends. I sent them the book in advance or I delivered it. And then we had a post meeting where we debriefed it and talked about it. And I was really blown away by the generosity of the women that I wrote about in this book. None of them said, change this, or I disagree with that. And certainly my version of events is different than theirs. That's how human memory and human kind works. So I can't even believe how much love and generosity I received throughout this whole project. It's totally blown me away. You know, you write in the book about attending Al-Anon meetings when your boyfriend was an alcoholic. You, you write about your dad's recovery. You write about your own recovery from an eating disorder. And then Meredith tells you maybe it's time to work on friendships. Did you do that through meetings or was this just like a one-on-one with you and Meredith? That's a great question. I would say that there was something very deep, deep, deep happening between Meredith and I when we sort of, you know, both of us were veterans of 12-step program. We had a lot of tools in the toolbox. We had never really applied those tools to the subject area of friendship, which once we started looking at it and excavating, we're like, this is a huge area of life. (laughs) We have a lot to do. So certainly we were bringing back what we were doing in our conversations after meetings, or we'd call each other, we would give each other like writing assignments. Mostly it was her giving them to me, actually. (laughs) Um, And we would do them and we would share them. And that's certainly the stuff that would certainly it seeped into the things I said in a meeting or what I shared with other members of the 12 step world. But really, it was when I think about what really moved the needle on my behavior and my ways of thinking, it was the breakfast that we had, it was our one-on-one work. And so I think there's a really potent combination there. Both of us were supported by the larger groups that we were part of, but the things we chose to do side by side were also vital. I think I'll speak for myself. I needed both. You know, there was one part when you mentioned Callie and she was your friend because she was like, she became your running partner. And I thought, whoa, boy, I don't, I don't remember where I first heard this, but it seemed to be true to me. Like you can lie to just about anybody in your life, but you cannot lie to your running partner. I don't know if it's just when you're out there running and the endorphins that are going that you just, it's just not physically possible to lie to your running (laughs) partner. But then she had, you know, she had some issues with her feelings would be her and a jealousy thing. And so like she had some friendships issues. You had friendship issues. Meredith had friendship issues. Is the struggle with friendship, but is it a gender thing? Because it seems like, you know, it's mostly women who struggle with with female friendship. Why is this? I have that exact same question. And I was just at a retreat with 14 women and one man. And we ended up talking about friendship a lot. Everyone had read an early copy of BFF. 
And the women at the table, they had story after story, <laughs> their own stories, their mother's stories, their daughter's stories. And it was so, so, so gendered. And we turned to the man at the table and we were like, what's, what's the deal? <laughs> what's going on over there on your side of the fence? And he said to me something that I think is so profound. He said, and he got really, he's, he was, he's a white cis businessman. And he said, you know, I think that men don't do this kind of intimacy. We're not socialized to do it. And his experience, he's 65 years old. And his take on it was so early growing up, there was such a fear of being branded homosexual and the slurs that were thrown at young boys in his generation that you just didn't get close. You didn't want to do anything that smacked of being like a girl or effeminate. And so this area of his life is not well developed. He said he has one friend and all the women at the table, the extroverts, the introverts, those good at friendship, those not so good. We all just burst out laughing like one friend, like we kind of can't imagine it. We are not, I don't know if it's just socialization, but there's a it appears to my eye there's a huge gendered component to this. You know, in one of your conversations with Meredith, there was a revealing aspect to it, and it was about envy versus jealousy. You said, mm. you know, like you were jealous or envious or, or whatever, and Meredith replied, envy, that's when you want something someone else has. Jealousy is when there's a triangle. Talk to me about that, because that triangular imagery kept coming up then, for me anyway, as I was reading. Absolutely. And I had always been very sloppy in talking about those. I love the word jealousy. I was attached to it early on when I would think about so-and-so got this kind of purse in high school. And I always called that jealousy. So I'm attached to that word. But when I had that conversation with Meredith, I realized my true problem is envy, envy, like wanting what other people have feeling less than next to them. That's a two person operation. It's me and the object of my envy. Not that I'm above jealousy. I'm certainly not. <laughs> but the way that Meredith described it to me is there was a friend of mine that I was really, really envious of all of all the things, her hair, her children, her talent. And I kept saying jealous. And Meredith said, well, if you thought your husband was flirting with her, that'd be jealousy. I was like, well, I don't have that, but I definitely have the envy. And it's really changed the way I think language does really matter. I mean, I'm a writer. I should be invested in language. And I still catch myself thinking in terms of jealousy when it's really envy. There's something about envy that sounds less intense to me and jealousy. Originally, I had written this book as just a memoir of jealousy and envy, I suppose, but there was no real arc. <laughs> so I really had to like open up my lens and just, I know for me, I believe that my struggles with envy, which comes from a scarcity mindset, I will probably struggle with that until my final days. I'm okay with that, but I, I want to talk about it and I want to hear how other people navigate that. And it's a huge part of my friendship story. Your first book, Group, follows your transformative experience with group therapy. And some of your group therapy sessions are mentioned in BFF as well. In your acknowledgments, you thank Team Don't Start With The Scratch, which happened in group therapy. And I have to agree, the timing of when you delivered that story was unexpected and more dramatic, and it had more gravitas. So it made me realize that this isn't about anything petty. This is, this is serious. Can you talk to me a little bit about the role of therapy and its many forms in your life and, and perhaps why others should consider it? Sure. I have 
really, really experienced, there's no other word but transformative changes in my life due to therapy. And some of that, it's not hard to understand. I was an addict. I consider my eating disorder addiction. I was addicted to secrets. I was hiding. I was totally isolated. And I had no idea where to start back in, it was 2001 when I got into group therapy. And it was a terrifying, shocking <laughs> experience to all of a sudden be, you know, emotionally naked in front of a group of people. And that is the place where I began to understand what true intimacy was and how uncomfortable it is. Maybe it is for everybody, but for me, an addict who'd spent her life hiding and doing very secretive things, being straightforward and talking about what I ate and how I felt, that was very, very scary. And I can see now that the work I did in groups certainly laid the foundation for any intimacy I would ever want to have with a friend. And I started in group therapy because I was afraid I was going to die alone and I wanted to have a family and really I wanted a boyfriend, you know, as unfeminist as it sounds, that was, that was the bucket list item, a single item. And, but once I got in there, I realized, oh, these skills are needed for every kind of relationship, being a daughter, being a mother, being a friend. And I got to be an adult without having really any skills and I needed to go somewhere and get them. So I think I hate telling people what to do, but truly if, if people are suffering and are lonely or don't even know what they're feeling, they just know they're stuck and there's something, this terrible feeling of something so wrong, therapy is a really good place to begin to untangle what that is and get to where you're trying to go. I want to talk about form because the majority of BFF is narrative nonfiction told in a very linear style. And the last section is epistolary. Why did you decide to tell the last part of the story this way? This is going to sound super woo-woo, but it doesn't even feel like I chose it. I just started writing. I had the sensation that I wanted to tell Meredith what was happening since she passed. And I wasn't even sure it was going to be the book. I just knew I wanted to like have the exercise of using words to communicate with her, even though she's not on this planetary existence. And what I realized too, once I saw what I was doing, I realized it is the perfect enactment of the kind of friendship I could never do in that she's as gone as anyone can be. She has passed away and I cannot reach her in any traditional sense, but I'm still connected. I'm still here. And that was my major indictment against myself. I cut and run when things are hard or when there's transitions or when people move away or when I get too envious. I was a runner. And in this relationship with Meredith, I'm still right here, even though I joke with her like now and at the time before she passed, I was like, you're totally abandoning me. <laughs> and it was kind of a joke, also kind of true and um, certainly not her choice by any stretch. So the letters really feel to me like the emblem of having learned how to do it differently with her help. And I'm st still being connected is the absolute greatest honor of my life to Meredith and all my other friends. And I didn't want her to miss anything. I didn't want to miss the chance to have her be part of my story, even today when she's no longer here. You know, there was a point in the book when Meredith pointed out that your standard is perfection. 
So if you set yourself up to be a perfect friend, you're ultimately setting yourself up for failure. When you are not a good friend, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a bad friend. And Meredith encouraged you to be a good enough friend. Talk to me about that. Oh, my gosh. That's another gem. You know, when someone says something to you and you're suddenly you've been you've put yourself on a hook and someone just gently lifts you off the pointy, sticky part. (laughs) I hadn't realized that one of the things that was driving me in my friendships, driving me away from friendships was a sense of shame. Oh, I missed a baptism. Oh, I, if I didn't call someone on their birthday, or I, I felt like I couldn't show up because of my own emotional or spiritual or physical limitations. I felt like, well, I guess I'm out. I'll just leave because I couldn't work through the shame of falling short of my own standards. I'm not even saying the other friends were like, you must fly across the country for my grandmother's funeral. But I thought that's what a good friend did. And if I couldn't live up to it, I would feel so much shame. I'd have to go. So when Meredith gently pointed out, you just have to be good enough. That was an incredibly enlightening thing. I'd I'd applied that in my motherhood. I could see going into motherhood, there was this pitfall, right? Be perfect, breastfeed forever, but not too long and organic food. I could see that coming a mile away. And I didn't realize that those same stringent standards were impeding my ability to just be a good enough friend, show up the best I could, communicate when I couldn't, and walk through the shame of not being the idyllic friend that lives in my head, which is an impossible standard. You know, as we mentioned in those letters, you updated Meredith on friendships you thought were lost. So where are you in your journey of navigating female friendships? Is there an arc in that story? (laughs) Yes, there's an ongoing arc. I really, it's so interesting how this book about friendship has now become a totem among my friends and the work that we've all done reading the book. You know, some people have feelings about not being in the book and it's hard not to be defensive or want to like go back and write a chapter or to convince someone, listen, you don't want to be in this book. (laughs) You want to have the nice non-dramatic friendship with me that we've enjoyed. And so I've had so many deep conversations with friends about what it means for me to write a book called BFF and have friends who don't appear in it, the ones who do. I do see it ongoing. I see myself as someone who, one of the struggles I'm having currently, just because I'm not, it's not tidy, I'm not perfectly fixed, but I would like to do more putting myself out there and making even bigger efforts to see friends in person face to face. I kind of like that, those muscles are super atrophied in me. I wasn't a great initiator before the pandemic. And so now my vision is to be a person who creates opportunities for friends to gather. It doesn't even have to be one-on-one, but just I'd like to perform that role in my circle because that's a lot of labor. And I've let other friends do that labor for years. And it feels like maybe it's my turn to step up and make the plan and invite people or make the reservation instead of riding other people's coattails on that front. I saw this memoir described as voyeuristic. What do you hope readers will take away from BFF? Do you have any advice for women on how to foster their friendships? Or did you write this for yourself? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I wrote it to honor the bond between me and Meredith. And I also wrote it for women out there who maybe they're not in several 12-step programs and go to group therapy and they think they're the only one. 
This book is for the woman out there, I suppose for a man too, but it's for the woman or girl out there who thinks she's the only one who's not just naturally awesome at friendship and is confused or lonely or despairing. I wanted her to know that A, she's not alone. B, there are things you can do with a buddy or on your own that might change that story that you might be telling yourself it might be a lie about who you are in the world as a friend. So I can't say it was fully for me. It was for me and Meredith and for lonely friend challenged people out there who might need to see their story somewhere. Well, the book is BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found. Christy Tate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That was Christy Tate, author of the book, BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.